Welcome everyone to the OG pod. Today, my guest is Melissa Dorman, who has a really unique story and background from uh, social work to entrepreneurship and now runs a um, suite of, I think, 30 doors of real estate. Is that is that correct? Yeah, you. That you're managing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Caleb. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So I just found out that you spent some time in India. Can you start and walk us through what you were doing there, how you got into social work, and and yeah, tell us your story. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting story. Um, I was a global studies sociology major in undergrad, and um, I really wanted to do some humanitarian work when I graduated. And so I signed up for this program. Um, through my school and there was actually a, a donor that saw my application and I, w- I was really feeling stressed about going through this program because they would basically pay your tuition or your, your student loans for two years but then you'd have to come back to America and just like any other person with student loans you'd have to go back to work and, and pay your own debt um, but actually on the day of graduation this anonymous donor after seeing my application paid off all of my student debt um, at wow. graduation yeah, and so I suddenly was freed up to be able to do this program, and so I, I went overseas. I went to India. Um, I lived. You never there. found out who it was, like totally never. anonymous. Totally anonymous. Incredible. But it changed my entire life and my whole trajectory. And so, you know, after receiving wow. that huge gift, I, I, I really wanted to, you know, put that to work. So I, I went to India. I found an organization called Freeset. Um, they work with women who have been trafficked. Um, so it was, uh, it was a neighborhood of about 10,000 women who had been trafficked uh, into sex trafficking, either at young ages or um, as adults. And in India, there's a, a caste system. And so once you're um, deemed mm-hmm. uh, a sex worker, it's really hard to, to you know, remove that label and to be anything else in society. And so this company is a social business and they provided work to women um, they would make handbags and T-shirts and that sort of thing and sell them to Whole Foods and that sort sort of uh, organizations like that. And so I was basically the um, project manager. I would I would bid out what does it cost to, to make 10,000 bags or 20,000 bags or something like that. And um, yeah, so that was the service that I, I did during my time. And there. you were there. Super- how long were you in India? I was there for a year. So I, I learned uh, like I, I lived in a slum there. I, I lived with four other people. Um, very small room about the size of a king size bed with, with like a a hole in the floor. And that was where we brushed our teeth, went to the bathroom, cooked our food. It was, um, it was a really extreme environment, but I, I lived that way so I could learn the language, understand the people and really connect and and do good work. Do you still know any of the language? Like there's a few dialects, right? Yeah. So I spoke Bengali at the time fluently, but it's been over 10 years. And yeah, when you don't use the language, you lose it. So I've, I've lost basically all of it at this point. Wow. Um, now, when you say a slum, like, how would you describe that? Like, what, what was it dangerous or like, yeah, okay. How would you describe that? Yeah. So basically, people are just stacked on top of each other. It, it was um, not quite a shanty town where things are made of cardboard and, and loose pieces of you know wood and that sort of thing. It was concrete buildings, but um, rooms could be as big as a closet. Uh, you know, like, and, and like a closet in America, like you put your coat when you first walk into a house, like that size, like coffin size would be a room. Our room was fairly large. We, I shared it with three other people. Um, so it was a little bit larger than a king size bed. 
Um, and it was a short, it was about four feet tall. So I could not stand up in the room. Um, so it, and it was, and it was a room within 20 or 30 other rooms in a building. Um, there wasn't good sanitation. The average lifespan was 35 years in my neighborhood. Um, and I was wow. there when I was about 21, 22, but, um, yeah, the amount of disease and infection and, um, didn't you, you feel know, like just... you were like in danger or how did you manage? <laughs> I think I was so young and dumb that I didn't realize how <laughs> in danger I was, <laughs> but I was oh, that's very an advantage of youth, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was sick constantly. I mean, yeah, I was, it, it was, I had typhoid when I was there, Giardia multiple and multiple times. I mean, yeah, it was really extreme living conditions. So this kind of came about because you had been given this gift and you were looking for ways to give back. Um, how, like, why, why India? Like, how did that even really come about? Yeah, I'd kind of put the feelers out for several different organizations, and this was one that um, I really connected with. I liked the work that they were doing. I liked that it was a you know financial, uh, social business model, and it wasn't just about handouts or anything like that, but it was actually giving people a new job, a new work, so they could feel um, useful in their communities. Um, so I, I really liked that, and that was probably the beginning of my business skills uh, development, actually, being in that position. So you spent a year there, and then when you came back to America, I assume, uh, what would you do next? You were you you kept going with kind of social work. Yeah, so I, I got back, and I decided I wanted to continue that in just a more professional manner. I, I lived very extreme life in India. I wanted to live just a little bit um, safer <laughs> in the United sure, States. Sure, I could imagine. To, still continue to do great work with people. So I got my. Um, my MSW at UCLA and in social work and basically uh, what's right MSW? Off, oh, Masters of Social Work. Sorry, I got okay. a Masters of Social Work and I started working with homeless youth in Hollywood uh, right out of the gate, and that was a really rewarding and fulfilling experience, helping about forty people, um, uh, transitional aged youth, so twenty five to nineteen years old, um, helping them into permanent supportive housing, helping them off of drugs, and uh, getting the mental health services that they needed to thrive. So. Um, it was a it was a great experience, but it was really really challenging. So I, I ended up getting into um, LA County Jail and working as a social worker there, and that was a lot more stable. And um, I really enjoyed that job as well. And then from social work, you kind of had uh, you weren't making I guess as much money as you would have liked, and you had this financial pressure, and that is a lot of what drove you to become an entrepreneur to begin with. Yeah, yeah. So actually, while I was working at LA County Jail. Um, my dad started to get um, more and more sick. He had Alzheimer's, uh, and he had he had been diagnosed maybe five years prior, and he was um, becoming totally disabled. He couldn't work anymore. And my family, being middle class and not really having any savings or retirement strategy, it became clear to me that we didn't really have the resources that we needed to take care of him because it was about $7,000 a month uh, for a home care worker to come in and my family had no resources for that. And as a new social worker, I was making about $40,000, $50,000 a year. So I didn't have the resources for that either. And I realized that in that moment, that's where I woke up and realized, okay, I, I, have, to, I have to make money if I don't want this to happen to my family or to me in the future. And it really was a, a moment of change in my life. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine like, um, I mean, just in my own experience, those moments of pressure, they really do kind of, I think, either start like the ignition of something great or they just like it's too much pressure and people uh crumple 
But how did you decide on on this path towards real estate? It sounds like you've always kind of been connected a little bit into this housing world. I don't know, like the slums of India and helping people in LA. Um, like why real estate versus the stock market or whatever, you know, like w what was your yeah. kind of interest there? Yeah, so I was a social worker in the jails and you can't have your cell phone there. And there's a lot of downtime between um, interviews with, with the inmates that were coming through. And so I had about 20 hours a week and I just started Googling on the computer there. You know, how do you build wealth? How do I how do I do this? Okay. And I, I looked into stocks. I looked into other things. And they honestly, they just seemed really complicated. Um, and the easiest path forward uh, didn't you didn't have to know very much or, or be very smart was real estate. Um, it was very accessible. I think most people. Uh, can you know most people can manage a budget and, and understand simple math addition and, and subtraction can handle the mathematics of real estate so what was it like t trying to like um go from being like i there's i i don't know there's two types of real estate that i think of anyway is like one is like i'm gonna buy a, ho a house and this is where i'm gonna live and the other is i'm gonna buy an investment property to generate cash flow and it sounds like you were very purposely looking to generate cash flow. Um, so how did you like go about solving that problem from a technical mm -hmm. perspective? Like how much did you, did you know how much you'd need to raise? Did you know, like in general, what kind of terms you could um, get housing at? Like, how did you approach it? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in the jail for that year, I just started self-educating. I would listen to uh, numerous podcasts about 20 hours a week, just really studying. And um, what I learned on there, a lot of it was through a podcast called Bigger Pockets, which is free. Um, I realized that small multifamily would probably be the easiest route to do it because when you are buying a small multifamily property, you can put as little as three and a half percent down with an FHA loan. And the income of the second unit that you're not living in actually counts towards your debt to income ratio. So it's almost like you're making an extra thousand or two thousand dollars a month on your paycheck. So can can you repeat that? The, the income of the unit that you're not living uh, in counts for or against your debt to income ratio, because that's important for acquisition of new properties. Yeah. So when an underwriter is looking at your overall income, they want to understand how much you can afford. And so they look at how much is your debt, how much is your income. And usually it's just looking at your W-2 income, right? But when you buy a small multifamily, they also add in the rents of the unit you're not occupying. So they, they add it before it's really your money. And so it boosts your amount that you can afford. I see. Mm -hmm. but it so also your plan was to purchase a place that you could live in and manage and then also uh rent out those additional units that's very smart yeah yeah and half your mortgage is getting paid for each month so it's it's a much lower risk uh than buying a single family house so okay so that's pretty cool so you found this podcast what was it called again the oh bigger pockets bigger pockets and you're doing this research and you kind of settled on uh real estate as a way all, all of this is to generate wealth, right? All of this is to solve the financial problem or whatever that you were facing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, what was the first property and how did you expand? Yeah. So after about a year of studying, I decided to start sending out direct mail where you write individual homeowners and ask them if you can buy their property. And so I did that for about 500 duplex owners in Portland, Oregon. Um, that's where I'd moved up to. And uh, I got 
pretty good response rate. And one of them um, decided that she wanted to sell, sell her duplex to me. And so being new to Portland, Oregon, I didn't really understand values or anything like that. And I walked through the property um, with an investor that I had found um, through networking. And he looked around and said, if you're not going to buy this, I will. <laughs> and so I knew okay, I had a good deal. Good um, yeah. yeah, I knew I had a good deal. And so I found that off market that way. Um, it was really a win-win. Um, the, the seller was actually a realtor out of Colorado. She didn't want to list the property. She just wanted to sell it directly and be done and quick. And so I was a great solution for that. And the, uh, the property actually appraised for 50000 more than I was paying for it. And it was in that wow. moment that this light bulb clicked for me. I, I spent about 30 hours sending out that mail and talking to her and that sort of thing. And in like that, I made 50000 of equity. And that's like a normal social work salary. I was thinking, okay, well, if it took in me one 30 year, hours. Just from your first yeah. deal. Yeah, my first deal. And so I, after I closed on that property, about two months later, my dad actually passed away. And so for me, I just couldn't go back to work. Like I'd watched my dad. He was the hardest working man I knew. He worked six, seven days a week, had nothing to show for it. And I just couldn't let that be my fate. And so after he passed away, I just, I didn't go back to work and I started doing real estate full time, which was honestly quite crazy. I only had $16,000 in my checking account and I just bought a duplex. It was not something I would recommend. It's not a path that I, I think is smart, but it's what I did. And, and, and it really put the pressure on me to move. <laughs> uh, can we just get into the details of the duplex? Like what was the, um, what was the purchase price? How much did you need to raise? And then was it profitable immediately? Like, and then how did you begin to leverage that? Because you're basically starting from zero, right? Like you didn't have cash flow from other properties yet. This is your first deal. So that seems like the hardest to go from zero to one there. Yeah, the first deal is the hardest. It takes a lot of um, identity shift, you know, from I'm a renter to mm -hmm. now I'm a landlord. And so at the time uh, I had over many years saved up $50,000. And so I put, um, I think it was like 12 and a half thousand down. Um, after some closing costs, it, it was about 16,000 all in. And then once I took over the unit, it had been, there was a tenant there that had been there for many, many years, I think a couple decades. So I helped her relocate, helped her find a new apartment, played social worker there, and it was really like helping her in her transition. But then I had a really gross unit <laughs> that I needed to renovate. Um, it, it was it was bad. So I spent $20,000 renovating that. And then after everything was said and done, I, I basically had that 16,000 left in my checking account to start my real estate career. And then that those renovations, like, were you guaranteed to recoup that money? Or like, how did you know that that would pay off in, in terms of like being able to generate even more cash flow? Like, why not just keep renting it as it was? Just curious. Well, I had to live in that unit and I did not oh, gotcha. <laughs> live gotcha, in the gotcha. way it was. Um, but I also knew that it was worth putting the money in. The, the neighborhood was appreciating. Uh, it, it, it made sense to, to do the, um, the renovations before I moved in because then when I moved out, I could rent it at a higher rate. And it, it cash flowed um, right away when I moved out. It did um, maybe about $400 a month uh, all, you know, after everything was paid. So it was money well spent. And then um, I, th I actually sold that one four years afterwards and I netted about 250,000. So that's it was, incredible. A, it was an excellent so that's five year. years of work instantly. Yeah. Um, and of yeah. course all the cash flow that you got between and all the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sounds like your social work has actually come into play a little bit. You have a unique strategy for these investment properties, right? Um, or maybe not a strategy, but when we were talking before you had like an, uh, a different approach to like 
offering cash flow to people. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, after that deal, I actually started focusing on seller financing. And so, uh, yeah, for for those that don't know, seller financing, instead of getting a bank loan and making your payment to Chase Bank or U.S. Bank or whoever every month, you actually make your mortgage payment directly to the seller. And so in that way, they're able to um, get a monthly annuity, a monthly income for their retirement. And it's a great win-win because if they were to sell that property, they, and it's an investment property, they're going to have a capital gains, uh, you know, tax right after they sell. And so for instance, my second deal, which I think could be a lot more interesting for your podcast, um, I I found uh, an attorney, uh, he wanted to get um, a valuation of how much his triplex was worth. And we were, we were friends. We had met, uh, I was cold calling people, you know, as a realtor and I, I ran into him. And so anyways, I went and saw his triplex. Uh, it had two vacant units. And uh, he, after walking through, he turned to me and said, I'd really like to sell or finance this to somebody. And I said, well, why don't you do that with me? And so, I mean, we sat down that night and we put together a proposal. And basically um, what we decided was that I would put... Um, I would put $15,000 down, uh, which was the cost that it would be to foreclose on me if I didn't make my payments on time. Uh, that was roughly 2% down, which you're never going to find a loan. Wow. <laughs> 2% down on a non-ear occupied um, triplex. And then on top of that, I said, hey, you have two units that are vacant. So would you delay my payments for a few months so I can get those rented up, which he agreed. And then I turned around because I didn't actually have $15,000. Remember, I'm I'm newly quit my job. I didn't have any savings. So I, I made some phone calls and I found a friend who could loan me $10,000. And, and I had a, a loan in second position, like another mortgage um, in second position after him. And so I just had to come up with about $7,000 after closing costs to close that. And then what I did wow. is in those first two months, I recouped $6,500 of that back by renting up those units. So I was all in on this triplex in Portland for $500. And what was great about it is it cash flowed, uh, I think about a thousand bucks right off the bat because I was doing interest only payments. So I wasn't paying him principal each month. He didn't want principal because he'd have to pay taxes on it. And I didn't want to pay him principal because I wanted cash flow. So it was a win-win. Um, and so that, that transaction was the first of um, my seller finance transactions. And, and it was a real win-win because going forward, he wanted to do so many other deals with me. He wanted to invest with me. He was so happy with how that transaction turned out for us both that I built a lot of trust and we still partner on deals this day. So how many rentals are you up to? Like, it sounds like you've just kept this going for five years now or? Yeah, yeah, it's been five yeah. years. So I'm up to yeah. 32, 32 units now. That's incredible. Um, I feel like anyone listening to this, like th- this is very achievable, right? Like these sums are, it's, it's hard to get 10 grand together. I, you know, but like that's achievable. People can get 10 grand together. And, um, and you were able, how much was it? Seven grand. It was like 2% down. Yeah. seven thousand. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that is like something that is, if, if I'm just like somebody listening to this and I want to, uh, find a way to get out of like the rat race or whatever and um and and build my own security and cash flow and all the great things that come from owning your own real estate um like how would they even begin thinking about this stuff it's it's you know like seller financing that i don't think that's a very common uh commonly known thing um mm. what advice would you give to people for like even how to begin thinking of making that identity shift of being a renter to a landlord. 
Yeah, I, I think what's really important is to surround yourself with people who are already doing it. And so wherever you live, find yeah. that local real estate network. Um, there's investors meeting up all the time and find the people that are doing seller financing. They're, they're in every city and every state. Um, a huge network. Wherever, Whenever I'm traveling, I'm able to find people that are doing this kind of work. And um, really, it's about a mindset of win-win. You know, if you're out there thinking that you're just going to fool somebody into, you know, giving you a bunch of equity or take advantage of somebody, that's that's not what it's about. You really have to be out there looking to solve problems. And so I, I would just encourage people to network uh, with other investors, listen to podcasts like Bigger Pockets, um, and just start to learn from the people around you on on how to do it. So um, how has this kind of changed your perspective on things? If you were going from making 50 grand a year to ostensibly having millions of dollars in uh, real estate value, must be at 32 doors. Um, like how has that kind of changed your life and your mindset and how you, and how you think about how you spend your time and everything? Yeah, it's completely changed my life. Like, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, real estate has been a, an absolutely transformational experience for me to be able to recognize that I can go out in the world and create my own future, um, to be able to create my own reality around me and, and lifestyle design. Um, not only have I been investing in real estate, but I also am a real estate broker. I realized that I'm very good at this and let me help other people. And so the ability to help 40 to 50 families or investors each year to change their life has been an incredible experience and a huge honor that I get to participate in um, on a daily basis. And so, I mean, quite frankly, I'm at a place where I don't need to work for the rest of my life, but I really enjoy what I do. Um, I love changing other people's lives the way that real estate has changed mine. And so, I mean, I, it, it's changed everything. I, I have a fantastic life. I think the thing that is so in, like, more cool about real estate than like stocks and investing and crypto and all the other ways that people try to like earn money outside of um I, I guess it's like a passive income from a tangible asset. It's like a real thing. The ground exists, the land exists, the building, the wiring, the lights, all of that is real and has practical value to people. And that's one of the things that like I wish I had uh figured out a little bit earlier in life is I do I do have some real estate and uh, luckily, I got hit so hard in this market downturn that that real estate is the only thing keeping me afloat. And I'm like, oh, my God, if I didn't have that, like, it would be real trouble. It'd be real trouble. Yeah. And and so it is such a great way to start building your wealth is is to do it that way. So how would you recommend somebody if they had like, I don't know, 10 grand? What do they do with it? And they want and they want to model after what you've done. Yeah, if you have 10,000, I mean, it depends where you're at, but the easiest loan um, to get is an FHA loan, 3.5% down. Uh, often realtors can negotiate all your closing costs to be covered by a seller. So $10,000 can often get you into a property in many markets. Um, if it can't, then I would recommend trying to send some direct mail out to owners, reaching out to an escrow company, telling them you're an investor, asking them for a list of whatever type of property you're trying to buy, maybe it's uh, duplexes in the area, and just spending a few hundred dollars or maybe $500 on some mail, hand addressing it, sending it out, and just picking up the phone when people call and starting to build relationships and explain your situation, be very honest. Hey, I'm trying to buy my first investment property. I'm reaching out to owners. I really, I really want to get into um, investment properties. Would you be willing to sell to me at seller financing? And 
And a lot of people who are an older generation, they survived uh, the 70s and 80s when interest rates were 18, 19%. And so they're familiar with it and they understand that it's not something where they're getting taken advantage of, but actually where they're creating an annuity for their retirement. And so it's just a matter, it's a numbers game, right? You just need to talk to enough people until somebody says, oh yeah, that would be a great solution for my retirement. Let's sit down and talk about it. And when you have the right deal, this is what most people don't understand. Money follows deals. Money's the easy part. There's lots of money out there. It's when you find the right deal and you have a network of other investors and, and you show them, hey, I got something that's going to cash flow a thousand bucks a month. Do you want to do you want to lend me some money for the down payment? Easy. <laughs> that, that's, that part's easy. It's finding the deal. Most people don't have the grit or determination uh, or people skills to go out there and meet people and, and create, a, create a, a deal. So is the best, like if, if you're looking to get into real estate as an investment, um, is the best way to look at like these multi-unit housing, what would you call it? Like duplex, triplex, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think small multifamily is probably the lowest risk. You know, a lot of people, when they think about real estate, they think about house flipping. That's a very high risk. Uh, uh, and it's, it's also a job quite frankly. It's like a realtor. I have a job, right? Um, being a house flipper is a job. You, you have to keep flipping houses to make more money. But to be a real estate investor, um, you, you really have to be thinking uh, long term, like a buy and hold strategy. And so the best way to do that is to really leverage um, one, your ability to move into it and to get a very low interest, uh, low down payment loan, uh, like FHA or, or conventional loan, that sort of thing. And so it allows you to leverage much more. And when you can buy, let's say, a million dollar property with 5% uh, down, you're taking 50000 but that's you're not incredible. controlling an asset that's worth a million dollars, right? And so that asset's going to grow 5% a year, let's say, in a very conservative world. So you basically, in the first year, you've made all of your money back just in appreciation. And so, yeah, I, th I think small multifamily is a much safer route. I feel like people don't even think about this stuff. You know, they wake up, they do their job, they're working for the weekend and they just are going to take what life gives them. What set you apart? Was it just like the need to, for, for your father's sickness or, or what was it? Yeah, I think, uh, the more, the more time that I have away from my, my dad's passing, the more that I've realized that when somebody really close to you passes away, it shows you how fragile life is. And it really can be a turning point. It can, it can create an awareness and awakeness in your life. And for me, that's what my, you know, my watching my dad be this hardworking man and, and, and really clock in and give to somebody else's dream every single day for 50 right. plus years um, and see that really add up to nothing for himself. It was a huge wake up call for me. And so uh, you call it a trauma response, uh, whatever you want to call it. But for me, watching my dad um, live and, and pass away was was for me the wake up uh, that I needed. And it put a huge fire um, in my life to be able to make sure that I didn't want this to happen to me. And granted, I'm still going to die. <laughs> I, mean, I can't course, get away from that, right? Um, but uh, I can put all of that energy and in, in, in into changing my own life and my own trajectory. And for that, I'm, I'm really grateful for my dad's life. Now, did you feel any kind of lack of motivation after, because you said it was just two years after you had started this, but you've still been so motivated to grow. Was it kind of like that you got a taste for this freedom and you saw that you could really build this intentional life? Yeah, yeah. I realized, you know, real estate would be this avenue and, and being a real estate broker could also provide me a lot of income um, to be able to continue to invest. 
And for me, it was just about getting to that freedom number, that, that six-figure income that's passive. Um, I reached that last summer, and I've been pumping the brakes ever since. Thank you. Yeah, it's a huge, huge accomplishment. And since that point, I've, I've, you know, people are always asking, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And I'm like, nothing right now. <laughs> like, I'm just going to enjoy. I think are you going to cruise? Are you going to, are you going to just yeah. keep doing what you're doing? Like, yeah, I've, I'm going to, I've scaled my, my work life down to about 25 hours a week. Um, I enjoy my friendships. I snowboard. I spend time with people that I love. I meditate. I go to the gym. All of this work for the last five years was really with an intentionality to have the lifestyle that I want, that I have now. And I don't need to keep pushing myself. You know, it's it's not about getting more and more millions. You know, you can spend that your sure. whole life and just be chained to that next figure that's going to supposedly make you happy. But for me, I'm content where I'm at. I really, I really love uh, everything that I've been able to build for myself. And now it's time to enjoy it for a bit. Now, yeah, I totally agree with that. Like it there it's so easy to get caught up in this race of like trying to get the biggest number you can get even though we all know that when you die, you don't take any of that with you. So, I I heard somebody say this. Maybe it was Alex Hermosi. I can't remember where I heard it, but I don't think it was my idea that um you want to die at zero. Like you want to mm -hmm. perfectly get it so that you've like it spend it all on experience, give it all away, whatever you do you don't yes. want to die. I don't know. Like I, I you got to respect Warren Buffett for his investing prowess, even though a lot of that came in like the last 10, 15 years, but still, um, like the way I would want to play it is, is to gather as much wealth as I possibly can to just be able to enjoy and experience life more. Um, yeah. and, and then to have that lifestyle. And I think that's a trap that people fall into is like, they're all, and I've fallen into this myself where oh, you're yeah. living for tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be like in the future, one day when I get this car or yes. this relationship or this whatever, like then I'll be happy. And it's such yes. a trap. It really and, is. It's like even in like the best or like the most, the, the most depressed I've ever been was when my bank account was the highest. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> it's I don't true. know if you've you experienced any kind of like of this. Uh, have you experienced anything in this success where you feel like, um, well, what do I do now? <laughs> like, what's the point? Oh, or are yeah. you just, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I had, I had to come to terms with that when I, um, moved into semi-retirement last year, you know, just started scaling back. I suddenly was faced with, wow, what do I do with all this time? You know, and I right, can play, right. and I play and I spent the whole summer, I, I took the whole summer off and I realized I get a lot of reward and fulfillment by doing something. Not, I don't have to work 40, 50, 60 hours, but what is it that I give back to the world? And, and right now, for me, that's helping other people to buy investment properties and to, to do stuff in real estate. That's my gift. That's what I'm really good at. Um, and I was fortunate enough that my neighbors, two doors down, they, they um, had a bunch of bakeries in San Francisco. They led the, the whole movement, uh, food trucks in, in San Francisco, and, and they had retired five years earlier. And they really cautioned me, don't, don't stop working, like do yes. something. And so I, this balance of 20, 25 hours a week really is the sweet spot where you feel a sense of fulfillment. You're giving back to the world, but you're not being owned by your work. And I wish it for everybody. It's, it's such a good balance. I think it's important. I think your story is important because I think people have to realize more and more that it's possible just from seeing examples, you know, like if one person can do it, another person can do it. And yes. then tactically, it might be like housing for one person or a restaurant. I don't know, like, you know, find a great margin business, hopefully. But like, yeah. um, 
<laughs> yeah, like like find something that you're passionate about, interested in, and that that doesn't feel like work. Yeah. So absolutely. so what do you how do you spend your time outside of those 24 hours where you're you know, like, I totally agree. You need something to do, right? Like you got to wake up and have something to do. Even if you have all the money in the world, you, you don't want to just like, you know, like relax and watch movies. You want something to build. Um, but outside of building your and maintaining your real estate, what do you, what do you spend your time on? You said yeah, like so gym, yoga, or yeah. Yeah. Uh, so each morning I, I go to the gym for two hours. I do a lot of weightlifting. Um, I, I meditate. What kind of weightlifting? Uh, yeah, just like standard weightlifting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all, all the like stuff. Like isolation body- machines, powerlifting, barbells, dumbbells, mm-hmm. what kind of stuff do you like to do? Yeah, like the squat rack and yeah, nice. just like bench press and dips and just, nice. you know, the usual, the usual stuff. Uh, I've since last summer, I've just had a huge um, transformation in my body. It's been really exciting to like see the change when you go to the gym for two hours a day, like how that how that looks and what it does. Um, and then I meditate in the sauna afterwards and I swear I'm just like floating afterwards <laughs> the first four hours of my day after that. And that's usually when I'm working. I get like four or five hours of work in, um, check emails, talk to clients, that sort of thing. And in the evening, I just like to spend time with people that I love. Um, I really like hosting big dinners. Sometimes last week I threw uh, like a 12 person uh, VIP dinner at my house and it was a five course meal and I just got to spoil my friends. And it felt so good to just share the wealth that I have with other people. Um, that's such a good use of wealth is creating experiences and, Mm -hmm. and those experiences can be for yourself through travel, or they can just be through a community and bringing people together for a meal. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) all these active sports, I love that stuff. Well, it's so funny how like people, again, go back to like delaying the future and always putting off like your life Um, I think that it's really important to find the balance between your job and the things that like really fulfill you in life. And what is that? Have you ever seen this like Venn diagram or something? It's like the perfect place to be is where your passion matches Mm -hmm. the needs and Mm -hmm. you can get paid for it. And you want to like stand in the center of that. Um, And it sounds like you're doing that. I think that's what I'm trying to do. It's really hard to get there though. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I found something that I'm really good at and that I changed my life. So, you know, it's a big part of my why in this world is financial education for other people. And I get paid really well for it. I'm I'm so fortunate that I found this like perfect little, uh, like you said, Venn diagram overlap. And and I love what I do. I don't have any desire to stop doing it. I just wanted to scale it back because as a realtor, I mean, it's one of the top 10 most stressful jobs in the U.S. <laughs> you can is work. It, why is it stressful? Because like you're dealing um, with people's real lives and like they're moving and it's stressful. Like, yeah. yeah. And there's no off time. Like you can be working at midnight. You can be working at 6 a.m. Uh, it's, it's, it's very intense and, and things have deadlines. And if you mess up, it can cost somebody thousands and thousands of dollars. And so you, you have to be on and with it. And so, um, I've fortunately, I've built an amazing team. Uh, I have a lot of people that support me. I have assistants that take a a lot of that burden off of me, um, and really reduce the stress. But, um, I think it's really important uh, to do that as you get more successful, to really start to delegate and, and make your life uh, less stressful. Totally. <laughs> totally. I mean, you look at somebody like Elon Musk, like what makes him successful, his ability to find people that can assist him in his work. Mm-hmm. And he can provide the vision 
and they can execute that vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so what goes into like an intentional life for you? What do you think are like the main elements mm-hmm. that are the life you're trying to build? Yeah, I think it starts for me with taking care of myself. And so that's why each day I start, I start at the gym. I start with meditation. Two hours. That. That's a good amount of time to mm-hmm. be at the gym. Yeah. yeah. I like to get up early, hit the gym for two hours. What time are we getting clock. up? Usually between five and six. Wow. Okay. Early yeah. start going to the gym. Yeah, that's awesome. Start. Yeah. Before the phone's ringing, I just want that solitude and that space for myself really get uh, in the zone and in a good space. And then, um, I, I think, you know, like I said, working a few hours is really important. I think health, taking care of your body, eating the right kinds of foods, um, lifestyle design in that way. I'm always kind of tweaking this or tweaking that to see how, see how it works. Uh, how does it make me feel? Um, I think rest is really important. Uh, I, I love naps. <laughs> if I could get a nap every day, I would. Oh, naps are great. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And community, I think it's really important to have um, just really fulfilling relationships that have a, a, a reciprocity about them, a real depth of emotional depth and, and, and a healthiness to them where you're giving and taking. And I think that's the substance of life is just who yeah. do you surround yourself with and how do you treat yourself and what's your relationship with yourself? And I think if you have those elements down, you're living just a, a really happy existence. Well, a lot comes to mind with that. Um, I mean, first with community, I think it gives people a place and a purpose. Like it Mm. really is fulfilling when you feel like you are serving a need that truly benefits other people and genuinely Mm. makes their life better. And man, I, I think we just have this crisis of purpose. I just think people wake up and they just do what they did because that's what they did yesterday. And they, they're not thinking about this stuff. They're not thinking like, I should, it's worth it to go to the gym and to wake up early and do these things. They're numbing themselves with drugs and alcohol, video games or whatever they do. I mean, I've done all that stuff and it's fun for a while, but it is, uh, it's all work. It's all work and it's all play. Like it's work Mm -hmm. to go to the gym and it's also play. It's work to manage your business and it's also play. And And how do you actually get, I think people like really need to take a step back and, and try to think, how do I build this intentional life? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, meditation is a good place to start, <laughs> to start. What, how is meditation? I, I have such a hard time meditating. I try to do it, but like five minutes feels like five hours. I'd rather like run five miles than meditate for a few minutes. Like, I mean, that gets you to a meditative state too, but I think Anytime you That's just true. kind of turn off the the thought patterns in your mind and give some space for awareness and, and to be able to observe yourself. Like I think most people are so attached to what their mind is saying and they think it's them. And it's like, no, this is this thing's just going. It's supposed to do that. It's evolutionary. It's it's how it's how our brains work. But if you can create some awareness that you are not your thoughts and you actually have a lot more control and a lot of more inner peace uh, than than what your mind is trying to tell you all the time, then you can kind of have some perspective and start creating different shifts, um, starting to design your life, starting to think outside the box, uh, particularly around entrepreneurship. When I think about that, there's there's the anti-self, right? Anytime you try to do something new, something different, something hard, this little voice is going to come in your head and it's going to say, hey, you can't do that. That's not going to work out. It's going to be awful. Mm-hmm. Stay away from that. And and most people start to listen to it. Oh, you know, I have buyers all the time. They want to Well, it's a little prudent, it. you know, like to be yeah. able to like catch yourself before you just jump sure. off a cliff or whatever. Yeah, sometimes of it's wise for advice. Some, for sure. Sometimes it's really helpful advice, but a lot of times, you know, it actually it's gets fear. in people's ways. 
Yeah, it's just fear and being able to have some awareness that like, that's not the gut telling you what's right and wrong. That's actually just your mind because it's scared to try something new and it's an evolutionary thing. But this new thing, buying a duplex or property or something like that is actually what you need to do to be able to expand and to grow. And so you have to conquer that inner voice and say, hey, I hear you. I appreciate you. I have gratitude for not, you know, allowing me to walk off a cliff. And also I'm going to listen to me today. And me says that I want this for my life. Yeah. Yeah. And having that separation between your thoughts and yourself is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that is trained a little bit through meditation. I yeah, I agree. There's lots of ways to meditate. I don't think it's really meditative. If you're out for a run, you have a podcast going or, or music or something. Um, but anytime where you're exposing yourself to like the landscape of your mind and just yeah. letting whatever ideas come, that mm-hmm. is where you find and get in touch with at least what's going on in your subconscious. Cause otherwise, you know, we're so distracted through this, through our phones and through just, you know, our, our, the busyness of life that people don't take the time to even observe how they're feeling and what kind of thoughts Mm -hmm. come to mind. Yeah. I mean, you can journal. There's so many ways to access the mind to recognize it and to create some distance between um, the self and the mind. There's lots of ways to get there. I'm really interested in meditation. I feel like it has some untapped potential that I don't quite understand. I have a sense that it's really important and I cannot quite figure out like how to engage with it in all of the different ways that I think it could be beneficial. Um, yeah, it's taken me a long, yeah. like, I think I started meditating, you know, 12, 12, 15 years ago, actually in India. Um, and I didn't really get it at first. Like, what am I doing? Why am I here? What am I, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It just made me feel really anxious just sitting there. And it's really been Mm -hmm. years and years of practice. Um, and not very long. I wouldn't recommend sitting there for an hour (laughs) at first. Just try five. Yeah. Just try five minutes. Um, I, I do my best. My best meditation is after I've already worked out all this like animal energy, this anxiety that we have in our bodies after a workout is a great time to meditate because you, you're really just already having, yeah, you're already having all these great chemicals flowing through you. It's already boosting you into a space of mindfulness and it makes it a lot easier to quiet the mind and, and create that awareness. Um, but it just takes practice, like years and years of just little, little bit, five minutes. I've worked from five minutes to 10 minutes to 15 minutes. That's what I do twice a day. 15, 15 minutes, minutes not- is so long. I feel like anyone who's like, I meditate an hour a day. Really? You're not just yeah, on your yeah. phone. Like I can barely <laughs> yeah. keep five minutes going, you know, like 15 minutes it's- is a long time for me too. <laughs> but I feel like also people might have different minds. Like my mind never turns off. And so like when I meditate, the first like 30 seconds is just like, I'm just annoyed that I can't talk, you know, like I'm annoyed that I just have to sit there in silence, you know, <laughs> Totally, I feel that too. So we agree. Meditation is a great practice. Weightlifting is a great practice. Uh, community is really important. Um, what else like, are you excited for? You're going to, you're going to coast on, on the business part, uh, for a little bit and just enjoy your success, mm-hmm. which I think is so important. I think people don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, like what else What else do you think you'll be interested in or doing or developing in five years from now? Yeah, so what I'm, what I'm going to be working on next is I really want to write a book on um, money and your mindset around money um, and help people 
kind of create that awareness, that consciousness around how they have a relationship with money. Because we do, we have a relationship with money. And for some people, that relationship is to hide from it. For some people, that is that money's bad and they run from it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We all have these different ideas and these different uh, software is kind of programmed into our head and our relationship with money. And it impacts us tremendously in our lives. And so if I can create, help create some awareness about those narratives and, and how, you know, how you can change your relationship with money. I think that would be very impactful. And then um, in that book, I also want to just kind of address that if you're, if you're reading a book like this on how to build wealth and change your mindset around money, you too might have some childhood trauma that tells you you need to have a bunch of money in order to be enough in this life. And so I kind of want to have uh, some awareness around that and that trauma work because uh, certainly that, that was the case for me. So two questions. One is, uh, what do you think is the right mindset to have with money? And then two, how much is enough? Mm, that's a great question. Um, so I think with money, some of some of the hurdles that I had, uh, I came from a really Christian uh, conservative background and money was bad. Like that's that was my relationship with money. And and so living in a slum in India, no problem. <laughs> you know, I have no money. I'm living on a dollar a day. I'm so, you know, it's so virtuous. Great. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's so virtuous. Right. And and so I had to really work through that. Like, why is money bad? Money's just a thing. You know, if you if you have a bunch of milk, you don't think you're a bad person. Why would you think you're a bad person? Because you have a lot of money. Um, and so I, I started to change my belief system around it. And I started to realize that money is just a tool and it just magnifies whoever you are. And so if you're a person who is gracious yeah. and generous and kind, when you have more money, you will, you will be able to do that on a grander scale. Um, and so I think that was a big, a big change for me. Um, also just generally discipline. I think a lot of people lack that, um, with their, with their use of money, often because of a narrative that money's bad and they need to hide from it or they need to get rid of it as soon as they get it, that sort of thing. And so just developing some good practices of discipline and, and really you're just taking care of your future self. You're, you're offering love and care towards your future, your future well-being. And so, um, yeah, so I think, I think those now, kind of one of the strategies not, one of the strategies I've always had with money is just, and, and maybe this is because I've been in a fortunate position to like always kind of be growing my income until recent years, but you know, I'm trying something new now, um, is, is just to play offense. I've never been too worried about losing money. And because mm -hmm. I've always just seen as like, there's this opportunity to continuously generate more. Um, mm -hmm. but it's made me make some terrible financial decisions and I've wasted <laughs> ungodly amounts of money. And so like, I don't know, like to me there, I, I do find a lot of freedom in it though, where I don't, I never feel like I'm never like, I know millionaires, decamillionaires, hundred millionaires that are pinching and counting every penny. And I'm like, you're poorer than anyone I know. Like your life is poor. Like you're thinking about it in the wrong way. Like money is supposed to set you free. Yeah. You're supposed to go yeah. to the restaurant and just not look at the price. And you're mm -hmm. supposed to go to the grocery store and shop according to what makes you feel healthy. Like, you yeah. know, like, yeah. So I, 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 any, any thoughts come to mind with, with like my mindset, like maybe how to change that? <laughs> I mean, I, I've had it too. I remember like two years ago being at the grocery store and seeing a mango and being like, oh, I can't afford that. It's like, of course I can afford that. I'm a millionaire. Like, what am I telling myself? I have these old belief systems from when I was a kid of like what we could buy and what we couldn't buy. And it's in these minute little details all the time that we just reinforce in ourselves. And like you said, it really is about, well, what is this money for? If this money's not for enhancing my life, right. then what do what I have it for? for? Yeah, what is it for? And so... I don't know. Like for me, it's just been a constant awareness. I think that that's the general theme, like just creating awareness around what are you telling yourself about money? 
Um, for me, mm-hmm. I had to override that mango belief. I can't afford a mango. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Yeah. I can indulge in that. It's, it's, it's not going to bankrupt me. It's something that I find a lot of joy in and I should enjoy it. Um, I, th- I think what gets dangerous is people have this all or nothing, nothing thinking, right? Either I always indulge right. in everything that I want and I'm never going to question whether if I want it, I'm going to go for it, right? Or I have to penny pinch all the time and I can't ever treat myself and I can't ever, in, you know, take even a ceramics class or whatever. Like that's too much. It's like, no, create balance. categories, like create balance. Like I'm going to, I'm going to allocate 20% or 10% of my income towards my future self and my savings. Right. And then I'm going to allocate this towards my needs. And I'm going to allocate this, this piece right here, this 10, 15, whatever you, whatever you decide it is, this is the enjoyment of now. And you can spend Mm -hmm. that however you want completely guilt-free because it is money that you've set aside with this particular purpose in your life. And I think when you do that, you can create the discipline and the balance and Mm -hmm. the enjoyment now all at the same time. I also like what you said that not only is it a tool, but it exaggerates, maybe that wasn't your word, but like it amplifies whatever your personality is. And if you're kind of like a penny pinching miser, you're going to be even more that way. And you're like going to be like just trying to max out the number. And Mm -hmm. if you're the opposite or if you're like wanting to like, I don't know, like develop skills or hobbies or whatever. I, I like the idea that it amplifies you and, yeah. and that's dangerous because it can amplify your good qualities, but it also can amplify your bad qualities. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Have I, you heard this I, stat I, that like people that win the lottery, they get normalized to it in like two years? Yeah. Well, they often lose it really quickly too. Cause they, they it came too they quick. Inherited, yeah. They, they came to them quick and they don't, they don't understand how to use money. Right. That's why they're playing the lotto. It's like a tax for, for poor people or, or smart people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're buying and a lotto ticket. Like why not just go to Vegas? I mean, I guess, well, it's the same yeah. thing, but still like, why not play the odds? The real odds yeah. are buying real estate, buying even like the, throw it into like yeah. an option call on the stock market is in my opinion, better than blackjack. Like, Oh yeah. If you really want to feel something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so much like normalization around gambling, but there's so much fear. I mean, I hear that all the time, especially when I was transitioning into real estate. Oh my gosh, that's so scary. I can't believe you're going to do that. That's so risky. I'm like, you know, what's risky not doing this, spending your whole life yeah. working for the next 40, 50 years. That sounds like a huge risk. That's like, yeah, so much. Cause the time. time, like, look at, like, I mean, I think that, uh, my parents and your parents' generation kind of did have like much more of a grind where you just work yourself to death and then at the end of that like maybe you get a pension maybe you don't but like if you're just a little bit more intentional if you can see a couple of decades down the road then you can really try to build something that accumulates Mm -hmm. and accumulates because the time is going to pass no matter what it's about what could you compound during that time not just money obviously money is a great interest compounder but like relationships compound skills compound interests hobbies those things compound and and how can you um and i think it is important though to like um compound money as well but but then also to change your relationship so then my second question was uh how much money is enough and maybe we can uh close on this on this one yeah so i (laughs) this is how i think about it um what is the number that you feel comfortable with on a, on a yearly basis, right? And really think about that now. Like, okay, would it, you know, for the lifestyle I want, maybe for somebody it's $100,000 a year. $100,000, I'd, I'd be happy, right? And then it's about 
creating a passive income stream that will support that. And then it has to account for inflation, right? <laughs> so yeah. $100,000 today, like, okay, I would love my lifestyle at $100,000. You have to factor in that that is going to be $200,000 in year 2020, I don't know, 30 or something like that, right? 2030. But, but how do you number. come up with the $100,000 number? Like, why not a quarter million? Why not 500? You know, like, why not 50? You know, like, where do you find that number? I think that's got to be some soul searching. I, okay. I think... For, for me, you know, for me, I think that number can always be this, this thing we chase, right? Once we get there, right. and that's the, that's the problem with this. It's like we create a number ahead. Maybe it's 100,000, right? But when you're, when you're at like 80,000 passive, then you're like, well, 100 doesn't quite seem that great. Now it needs to be 150, right? And so then you start chasing right. that. And you get about 100 and you go, well, 200,000 seems more right. And so you move that bar again and it becomes this continual continual chase. And really it's about fostering contentment because once all your needs are met and you have all the little fun things you want, maybe a house or cabin and boat or whatever, right? You have all these things. You really have to start working on contentment because you can spend your whole life chasing that bar and never be happy. Yeah, it's like you want to have the passive income of 100 or whatever it is, and then also be happy if you could just live in the woods in a cabin and, you know, like, I mean, not that you should be isolated or anything, but like you should be finding a way to know that money isn't going to really solve all of the problems of life. In fact, it really does solve a very limited number of problems and create its own, like we talked about in the amplification mm -hmm of mm -hmm. of your personality mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah it's definitely some soul searching uh are, are there other kind of like ways that you're thinking of generating income outside of real estate or is this like do you do any investing in stocks or crypto or anything like that <laughs> lost my shirt on crypto but um i think yeah, i i do so i have yeah it's been hard the last year um i so I, um, I invest in real estate, but also as a passive investor. And so I have my 32 rentals, but around 2020, I started to diversify by becoming a silent partner in syndications. And so a lot of people, they don't know, you know, difference between an accredited and non-accredited investor. Um, but once you, as a single person, start making 200,000 a year consistently and looking forward, then you can become what's called an accredited investor. And you can start to participate in larger syndication deals that are not going to be on like Vanguard or, you know, you're not going to be able to find these in a public market. Um, and those returns are much better. They, you know, between 10 and 25% cash on cash. And so that's how I started to diversify because rentals are great. They build wealth. They build wealth. They just continue to grow and appreciation, all that stuff. It's fantastic. But they're, you know, Portland's not a big cash flow market. And so only about half of my um, passive income really comes from my rentals. The other half is from these uh, syndication deals, investing in either debt or equity private funds. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, I'm, a, I'm familiar with syndications through like VC venture capitalists, uh, venture capitalism, but like there's a real estate arm to that as well. Yeah. Either they're hmm. buying apartment buildings or industrial buildings and you're participating as like one and 200 other investors raising, you know, millions of dollars or they're doing, uh, where they're, where they're lending, right? Maybe they're lending to house flippers or they're lending to, uh, business owners or that sort of thing. And so you're, you're, you're a lender or you're participating as a, a partial owner, but yeah, it's still in real estate. 
That's really cool. Well, you have such a rich history and I'm so excited to see like how you continue growing in the next couple of years. Um, I think that this, this is a really helpful example for people who, you know, just to show that you can go from a limited income where you feel like things are constrained and you're kind of living paycheck to paycheck to really just being intentional and thinking like, okay, how do I solve these problems? Mm -hmm. And then executing on that over years and having a successful outcome. Um, yeah. It's such a cool story. I love it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. No, it was my pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, so is there anything that people should get if they want to get in touch with you uh, and, and ask how do, how do they do what you did? Where do we send them? Yeah, so the, the company that I um, co-own with my business partner, Yasha, uh, is yashagroup.com. Um, that's our real estate team. You can reach out to me at melissa at livingroomre, livingroomrealestate.com. Um, so that's two easy ways to get a hold of me if you ever want to chat or learn more, or just shoot, <laughs> talk shop or whatever. <laughs> well, I hope we can talk shop again at some point. Thank you so much for your time today.